Good afternoon. And for those of you who do celebrate the Lunar New Year, a happy and blessed Lunar New Year. That was just uh, on Saturday, I believe. If you have a Bible with you, please do keep your Bible opened to the passage at Ephesians. It will help you pull uh, along the sermon. And also, as you come in, you should have received a loose uh, leave of uh, the sermon handout. Do take that out because that will give you a steer as to where we are going this afternoon. If you've been with us since the start of this year, you know that we've been preaching from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus uh, this past five weeks. Our, our church has been undergoing a period of transition, and we thought preaching on this series with a focus on the church uh, would be a help, especially for us to hear what God is saying to our church. And today is the final chapter from Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to just before launching to that, do a quick review of what we've covered in the last five weeks. We've learned about God's plan, his overarching purpose for his new creation, conceived even before the foundations of the world was laid, and his plan was to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, and to bring it under the headship of Christ. And through Christ's death and resurrection, God has created a new family, a new humanity, where there's no division, no discrimination between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. And what's the implication of that? As members of this new household of God, and that is all of us here who call ourselves believers of the faith, the church, we must live a life then that is worthy of our calling as God's reconciled community. We must remember where we came from, estranged from God previously, and how we are now reconciled with him and with one another. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in our Christian fellowship by growing in humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance, and peaceful tolerance. We must be praying for one another for inner strength in our lives. We must be using the gifts, the different gifts that God has given to each one of us to serve one another in the church. We must put away all the practices and the behaviors of the past before we became Christians and learn as the church to submit to Christ and also to one another in reverence for Christ. And hey, guess what? When you do all those things, we live forever happily ever after. Well, except that we don't do it. Because the Christian life is hard. And for some of us, very hard. And why is that so? Well, because as someone puts it, if we are walking worthy of our calling in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in new self rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in the fullness of the spirit rather than the drunkenness of wine, and in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, then we can be absolutely certain 
that we will have opposition and conflict. Which brings us to our first point this afternoon. There is conflict. Look at verses 10 to 12. God wants the church to know that they can expect conflict. There is spiritual conflict. Look with me at verse 10, 12. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, not against flesh and blood, not even about our own sinful self, but it's about the devil. The devil and the rulers against the authorities, cosmic powers, all his minions in the heavenly places. And so the first question that we have for ourselves today is this, what is happening in the heavenly places that's been referred to here? What is happening in the heavenly places? And this is not the first time if you've gone through the book of Ephesians that we come across this phrase in Ephesians, the heavenly places. And in fact, we've seen it quite a few times before in the previous chapters. And I love the way someone strung it all together to explain why we have this conflict. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Will someone read for us? Thank you. And here in chapter one, we are told that Christ is the ruler. So step one, Christ is the ruler. What about us? Chapter two, verse one. Thank you. And so we have some sort of hostile power called the prince of the power of the air that is opposed to Jesus and causes us to disobey. And because of that, we, are, we were dead in our trespasses. So step two, we are disobedient, we are dead in our trespasses. And so Christ rules and we are dead in our trespasses. But chapter two, verse six. And so those who put their faith in Christ Jesus have now been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. So step three, Christians are now raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look at chapter three, verse 10. So step four, all the power and authorities in the heavenly places can see the wisdom of God when they look at the church. You got it so far? Christ is the ruler over everything in heaven and earth. We were disobedient, dead in our trespasses, but those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, that is the church, that is our hope, all of us here, we are now being raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. And all the power and authorities in the heavenly places can see the wisdom of God when they look at the church. That's God's plan in a nutshell. But what do we have here in chapter 6, verse 11? Put on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
Thank you. That is spiritual conflict. The devil and all the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. And, and these are personal demonic beings, uh, not just some impersonal social forces. And that these evil spirits are all opposing Jesus, opposing the church. Why? Because as we read in chapter 3, through the church, the wisdom of God has been revealed and made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that's why they're not happy. And that's why they oppose the church. Well, think of it this way. Now, you guys remember the Raptor, Toronto Raptor game, game seven, 2019, final game of the series of the Eastern Conference semifinals, playing against Philadelphia 76ers in 2019. The final seconds, what, four seconds left? The score? Tied at 90 all, 90 each. And then we have Kawhi Leonard from the Raptors. He gets the ball, dribbles down to the, uh, to the right corner. And as the buzzer went off, he releases a shot that hits the ring of the basket four times before it entered into the net. You remember that? Oh, come on. You guys got to remember that. Right? All right. Or oh, if you're from Toronto, You've got to remember that. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Tonight, after you leave, finish the church, right? It's, it's well worth watching. Now, imagine that you now have a friend from Philadelphia who's visiting you tonight, staying with you tonight. And what do you do? You put that moment when Kawhi Leonard releases the ball and the buzzer goes off and the ball hits the ring four times, drops into the net. You play it on your 72-inch high-definition TV. You put it on continuous play over and over again the whole evening. Now, what do you think your friend, who's a diehard Philadelphian fan, is going to feel? Now, that's what's happening in the heavenly places. Well, except that God has brought a much larger screen, right? And he's playing the scene of Christians all over, living out their lives in a manner worthy of their calling as part of God's new family. And on a screen, you'll see, for instance, members of Christ the King living out their faith. They're coming to church on Sundays, worshiping together, like all of you are doing right now, listening attentively to the sermon, like some of you are doing right now, <laughs> putting what they learned into practice the other six days. Members of Christ the King meeting each other each week, a small group to support one another, to care for one another, reading the Bible one-to-one -one with one another, members of Christ the King living out their Christian witness at the workplace, in their community, in schools, sharing Christ with their friends, with their relatives, bringing meals for those who are not well, who are sick, supporting each other financially, helping their new rector and family move their stuff in, even if it meant missing one lesson, one class and so on, right? Essentially living changed lives, living lives that proclaim Christ's victory and the devil's defeat. And the devil and his minions are having to watch all this in the heavenly places on continuous play. You can imagine how unhappy, how furious they, they must be. 
And that's why they do anything to make the Christian life a hard one. They want to see us fall. As Peter the Apostle puts it, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that's what's happening in the heavenly places. There's conflict. And we are very much in the center of that conflict. In fact, we are right at the front line of the battle. Every day of our lives as Christians, we are at the front line, at home, at work, in school. The devil and his minions are looking for opportunities to trip us up, opportunities to attack us, knock us down. And we need to be aware of that. We often are not, but we need to be aware. And this conflict is serious business, and that's why Paul uses a military metaphor. We are at war. We are fighting a battle. The Christian life, the moment we put our trust in Jesus, is the start of the battle. A battle that the devil desperately wants us to lose. He wants us to fall. So how do Christians not fall? Well, Paul says it here in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So firstly, we need to be strong, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Our strength to fight and overcome the devil is supplied by God. We need the divine supernatural strength that only God can supply to overcome the forces of evil. And secondly, we have to put on the whole armor of God. Now, what is this armor of God? I don't know about you, but I've been taught this passage when I was much younger in Sunday school by my Sunday school teacher, and I just can't get the image out of my mind. It's that of a cardboard with a cutout of a Roman soldier. And then my Sunday school teacher would then put on the different pieces of the armor on the soldier, uh, the, the belt, uh, the shield, the breastplate, and so on. It's as if to say, this is what God's doing. He's supplying each one of us with different pieces of the armor. Uh, that he probably got from his armory in the heavenly places. I think that's probably not the best explanation for what the armor of God is. You see, I think what's happening here is that Paul was drawing from the Old Testament a picture of our God as the divine warrior. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, for instance, it says, the Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. And take Isaiah 59, for instance, which we read partly earlier on. The first part of this chapter describes the depravity of the Israelites. It's verse after verse of their sin and iniquity among the people. And then comes the pivot in verse 9, when Isaiah, on behalf of the redeemed among Israel, in humility, confesses and pleads for mercy. They plead for help. And then God looks around, and in verse 16, we read, God saw that there was no man and wonder that there was no one to intercede. You see, God was aware that no one could rescue Israel. He had to intervene. Only he could rescue. And verse 17 tells us, you have that in your handout. God put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Sounds familiar? See, God promised to address human sinfulness. And later on in the chapter, in fact, he covenants to do that by sending a redeemer, 
as our divine warrior dressed in God's armor. And it would be his son, Jesus Christ, who would put on that armor to defeat the devil on the cross. And this armor is the armor of the gospel, the good news that Christ has defeated the devil and has saved us, those of us who put our faith in him. We often spend more time thinking about the various bits of the armor, the belt, the shield, the helmet, and so on. In truth, what we should probably focus on more is what these bits of the armor represent, which is truth, righteousness, peace, uh, faith, salvation, and so on. Because when we do that, we realize that the various things uh, that are represented there, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, they're not actions that we are to start doing. They're not even virtues that we should be exhibiting, like the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is not urging us to be good or to do good. Rather, the bits of the Bible, or bits of the armor, they're all describing different aspects of the gospel. It's about how Jesus has won the victory against the devil and has started a new family of God who is saved, salvation, through faith, enjoying peace and reconciliation with God and fellow humans, eager to live righteous lives, listening and obeying the word of truth, the Bible. And that's what the various aspects of the armor is describing. And all along the letter to the Ephesians, Paul, in fact, has been talking about these various aspects of the gospel. Take chapter 1, verse 13, for instance. When Paul talks about the gospel, he talks about how in Christ, believers heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed or put their faith in Jesus. That's three aspects of the gospel that forms part of the armor. Word of truth, salvation, faith. And so putting on the full armor of God, God's armor, which Jesus wore into battle with the devil, is about having faith in the gospel. It means knowing the gospel. It means living the gospel. It means proclaiming the gospel. And it's exactly what the devil wants us to abandon. So how do Christians not fall? We put on the full armor of God. We put our faith in the gospel. We live it out in our lives. We proclaim it to others. But there's more. Look at verse 10 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14 starts off with, stand therefore. You see how many times the word stand appears in those few verses? This is another way in which Christians will not fall, by standing firm. Standing? What do you mean? I thought to win a battle, you should be moving furiously, marching, dodging bullets. You know, we should be pounding the enemies with uh, artillery fire and all that. What do you mean standing? Well, as some of you know, one of the privileges of being a Singaporean, which I am, is that I get to serve two and a half years in the military service. And as part of our training, we would go out on missions. And a typical mission would include moving along a major axis, usually a road, 
clearing it, making sure there are no ambushes by the enemy forces. And then this would be followed up with an attack on an objective, an objective which is usually a hill. And having captured the objective, we would then be required to defend it. You see, you're on the move all the time. There's literally no time to stand still. Except when we are defending the objective that we have just captured. Because one of the first things that we have to do is to, when you're defending the objective, is to dig a foxhole, we call it foxhole, on the objective. It's basically a hole of about five and a half feet uh, uh, deep for us to stand in. And this is just to protect us from the enemy, which will most likely do a counterattack. You know, when they fire on us, we can dodge into the hole. Uh, it saves us from artillery fire, what it can expect from the enemy as well. And uh, in return, we can return fire as well. So we have won that battle. We have captured the objective and we're now defending it. And that's why we're standing and not moving around. It's the same with the Christian life. The moment we become Christians, we start to be engaged in a battle with the devil. We're not in a battle to attack and win because Christ has already won that battle. He won on the cross and it was confirmed by his resurrection. We're not saved by starting new battles with the devil, but by living in confident faith that Christ has defeated the devil on the cross. We just have to stand to defend the victory. As someone puts it, wearing the armor is not about becoming like Christ, to defeat the devil. It's about staying safe in his finished triumph. And if you are not to fall, we the church simply have to keep wearing the armor of God that Jesus wore, which is faith in the gospel. And each time we live out our faith in the gospel, whether we are sharing our faith with someone, loving a fellow member in Christ the King who might be difficult to love, no, I don't think anyone like that exists here, but helping each other in our difficulties at 3 a.m. in the morning. Each time we do something like that, the church has been displayed on that gigantic screen in the heavenly places. And we're repeating to the devil again and again, Christ won, you lost. Next, verses 18 to 20, confidence. Well, Truth be told, I should have titled this section prayer because it's all about prayer. But I wanted to do an alliteration, the C, so it's confidence. Anyway, why confidence? Because firstly, it's about confidence in prayer. Look with me at verse 18. Paul urges the efficient church to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. I think you catch the emphasis there. How many alls do you see in a one sentence there? Four. We are to pray at all times, with all sorts of prayer, with all perseverance for all the saints. And this is how much confidence Paul has in prayer. You see, Paul is confident that he serves a God who does not need to go to sleep or take vacation. So he can pray to him at all times. He's never off duty. Paul is confident that he serves a God who is in control 
of everything in this universe. And so we can pray to him with all sorts of prayers and supplication, from finding a lost toy, toy for a little kid, to preventing the war from escalating in Europe and the Middle East. And with such confidence in the efficacy of prayer, Paul asked the church to be alert and to persist in prayer. We have to pray with all perseverance because prayer is necessary, prayer is effective. And because faithful, consistent prayer is hard work. I know there are certain members in our congregation who have committed themselves to be faithfully praying for Christ the King every day. We need to be thankful for these members. We need to be more like them, praying with all perseverance. And then Paul tells us that we are also to pray for all the saints, every one of us Christians, because we are all at the front line. We are being constantly attacked by the devil, and we need prayer that as the household of God, as the church, we will put on the armor of God, the full armor of God, and stand firm. So firstly, confidence in prayer. Secondly, confidence through prayer. Look at verses 19-20, and Paul writes, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Two times, Paul asked for boldness. You see, if the armor of God is about faith in the gospel, and you want more and more people to have faith in the gospel, you have to tell them. And that's why Paul wants to proclaim them, proclaim the gospel. He may be in chains, probably in some prison in Rome, but he never forgets that he continues to be the ambassador, an ambassador of God's kingdom. And one of the key roles of an ambassador is to represent the kingdom and deliver the king's message. And for Paul, it doesn't matter whether he's in chains or not. As long as there's breath in him, as long as he can speak, he wants to be able to proclaim the gospel boldly. And so he asked for the efficient church to pray for him. He wants confidence in proclaiming the gospel through prayer. I hope we can all be like Paul. I hope we all desire to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim it boldly with confidence. Let us all pray for that. Confidence through prayer. We can never underestimate the importance of prayer. And if you were to think of it in modern day terms, the part of the armor that will represent prayer would probably be a walkie-talkie or signal set of a soldier. It is how we communicate with our higher command. It's how we receive instructions as well. It's how we especially ask for resources to strengthen us, to take up the whole armor of God and to stand firm against the devil. And that's why prayer is given more attention than any other piece of the armor. Prayer is what helps us take up the full armor of God. It is what helps each piece of the armor to be effectively deployed. Let me conclude with a story. The story is taken from the Old Testament from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 17. It tells of the king of Syria, a man called Ben-Hadak. Syria was at war with Israel. And every time that Ben-Hadak would set a trap for Israel, God would reveal it to the prophet Elisha. 
and Elisha would tell the king of Israel, and then Israel would escape unheard. When Hadak thought that there was a traitor among his officers, and so he called them all together and demanded to know who it was. They told him the truth. Elisha, they said, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words, the very words that you speak in your bedroom. And so King Ben-Hadak decided it would probably be easier to capture Elisha instead. And then finding out that Elisha was at Dotham, he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And it came by night and surrounded the city. And then we're told that when the servant of Elisha arose early the next morning and he went out possibly to relieve himself or to draw water he goes out and he saw the army with horses and chariots all around the city and panicking he runs back to his master he says alas my master what shall we do and the prophet Elisha replied with this classic words of faith in verse 16 and you have that on your handout. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Guess who are the, those who are with them? No price for guessing. This devil and his minions. But those who are with us, Elisha said, are more than those who are with them. And then we are told, Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes. That's the servant's eyes. Open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God has sent his army to protect Elisha. Well, this story should give us much comfort. Yes, spiritual warfare is real, but those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And we need to pray by Elisha for eyes that we may see the spiritual reality that's all around us. Friends, let us all be aware of the conflict. Let us all take up God's armor and be ready for combat. And let us all be confident and devoted to prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>